It is a joy to be back. Um, before we pray together for God's illumination, I just felt led in a sense to read um, this passage from the Gospel of Mark. Um, we'll be looking at 2 Samuel 6 today for our text, but I just want to read this quickly to you. Uh, Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, but a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Um, I just wanted to encourage you, brothers and sisters, that this has been um, one of my favorite services I've been blessed to be a part of. Uh, and maybe in a sense because it's difficult. There's not many of us. We don't have a piano. Um, but we worship a God who loves uh, the widow's mites, who loves it when God's people bring a humble service, not because we're perfect or because we have much, but because he gave us much. And so if you're here today, um, if you're listening, if, you, if you're tuning into a live stream instead of going about your business, if you're listening to this on sermon audio instead of watching Netflix, um, these seem like small things, um, but we know that when we offer them humbly, our Savior delights in them, as he does in this service. So please join me in praying um, for more of his grace um, as we go into his word. Heavenly Father, we are aware of how small we are. Um, we are bruised reeds, and we are smoldering wicks. But we praise you as the God of love and mercy who cares for even those as small and weak as us. Um, not because of anything that we've done. You called us before time began. Um, you have changed us. You have given us a new heart. You've given us your spirit. You've given us your word, your people, your church. You are greatly to be praised. Father, now we pray for your glory, um, that your word would be mighty and powerful in the hearts of your people, that they would see the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, that all the fears and anxieties of this world would fall away, that the sin and temptation that plagues them would taste like ash in their mouth, and that you would use your word to accomplish that which you promised it to, that you would put faith in the hearts of your people, that you would grow their love and estimation of you and all of your wondrous works, Please, Lord, protect my words, protect our hearts, that we might seek your truth and your glory. Father, that we might be closer to you, that we might love you more, even in the smallest way that you have loved us. We ask for all of these grace and mercies in the name of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Amen. All right, as I said, we are in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Um, please stand with me um, as we honor God's word. This is the Word of God, 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, who was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God 
and took hold of it, for the oxen had stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord in that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told to King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I was raised um, partially in the Roman Catholic Church. I was what you would have called a Jack Catholic, someone who did not take it very seriously, did not go very often. Um, I was eventually kicked out of confirmation class. That's a story for another time, uh, but it's a fun one. Um, and then in my high school years, I had um, decided, high school and in my first year of college, that I was going to seek out all of the world's religions and claims and try to understand them. Now, because I had been raised Catholic, or so I had thought, I had also thought that I had already tried Christianity, and I had found it wanting, and so I moved on. And so I read Siddhartha, and I read the Bhagavad Gita, and I read um, the Koran, and I read the wisdoms and the sayings of the Prophet Muhammad, the Hadith, and I read... Um, the Book of Mormon. And the further I dived into religions, the more frustrated I got. And I was encouraged to eventually read something by a French uh, Protestant named Blaise Pascal. He wrote something called Pensee, which is just thought, his thoughts in French. And he said his frustration with the world's religions was how much they shrinked from the problem of evil. Um, they come up with these answers to avoid the problem, right? In Buddhism, it's the problem is everything, so just disconnect yourself, right? Is, Islam is going to conquer evil at the length of a sword arm. Um, and all of these answers, I felt, were insufficient um, until I went to a Campus Crusade Bible study. Um, it was just going through the book of Titus. But I raised the question. I said, you know, if God is so big and so strong, then why do bad things happen? And uh, my Bible study leader, Michael Clark, uh, I doubt he's listening to this, but if you do, thank you, Michael, brought up this story, uh, the story of the death of Uzzah in front of the ark. And what I was impressed by was how much the Bible runs right straight into the problem of evil. Um, what is justice? And we know the world today is very inflamed with that question. What is justice? What is goodness? Is God good? Is God just? And so um, I was reading through my Bible again, and I came to the story, and I was thankful of how God used it in my life, so I thought it might be a blessing for us as God's people to examine the story today. So um, we're going to look at the death of Uzzah, and we're going to ask three questions of the text. The first question is, what is the ark? The second question is, what is the sin that's committed? And then the last question is, what does God do? What does God do? 
So first we have to ask ourselves what the ark is, because obviously Uzzah touching the ark and then dying, we have to understand what the ark is to understand this story at all. And so in order to do that, we're going to go back in our Bibles first to Exodus chapter 25. Starting in verse 10, the Lord God gives to Moses the directions for what the Ark of the Covenant should look like. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it and two rings on the other. You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half shall be its breadth. And you shall make the two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim with its two ends. And the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces to one another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, And in the ark you shall put the testimony I give you. There will I meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I give you in commandment for the people of Israel. That's a bit of a long passage. You can tell I'm reading a lot of scripture today. I will tell you that is a little bit of advice I got from one of my professors. If you are a nervous young pastor, at least try to read as much scripture as you can. So at least the people of God will get some good out of it. It's also good to hear this again, because when I say the Ark of the Covenant, if you're being honest with yourself, you're probably thinking about Indiana Jones, which is a fine movie, but not how we do theology. The descriptions of the Ark are at length, and it certainly presents a very pretty image. There is a great deal of gold, there is a great deal of craftsmanship, and it's to be done with great specificity. And so we can imagine this very beautiful golden creation, and we can imagine that it, that it represents the presence and the beauty of God. And that would be very, very wrong. Because what the Bible says, what God says, is that the ark does not represent the presence of God. On the mercy seat, there is the special presence of Yahweh himself. The God that made the universe, the God that spoke to Adam and Eve, the God that cast them out of the garden, the God that spoke to Abraham and Isaac, the God that drew his people out of Egypt and gives them the laws, this God that the Israelites are following into the desert, he says, I myself will be at the mercy seat and I will meet you there. We cannot begin to grasp how important that is. God himself promised to meet his people at this mercy seat. It is not a pretty box that has some stones in it. It is the special dwelling place of the God of the universe. And if it's the special dwelling place of the God of the universe, that means something else very important. It means that it's holy. And we see this in its directions, right? That it's covered in gold, that there are these arcs of wood. It's further fleshed out in Numbers chapter 4. 
starting in uh, verse 4. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tent of meeting, the most holy things. When the camp is sent out, Aaron and his son shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark with it. They shall put on it a veil of covering of goatskin and spread on top of that a cloth of all blue and shall put in its poles. And over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put it on the plates and the dish for incense, the bowls and the flagons for the drink offering, the regular showbread. And they shall spread over them a cloth of scarlet and cover them with the same covering of goatskin and shall put it in its poles. There are multiple, multiple layers of coverings in between the Ark of God and the priests. The only people who could come within its presence, what the book of Numbers says is, they're not allowed to look at it. Layers upon layers of cloth cover this holy place of God because sinful men cannot approach it. And in fact, the cherubim themselves... The angels who are on top of the ark, we know, are covering the mercy seat with their wings and don't look at it, but look at each other, which is a picture of what we see in the rest of the Bible, right? The angels having wings specifically to cover their face because even the angels of God cannot look upon his holy presence. Now, we're going to go back to the beginning of Exodus, and we remember that when, when Moses shows up to Pharaoh and asks Pharaoh to let his people go. What was the reason that Moses made this request? So they could worship. So that they could be with this God. Everything that happens, all of the amazing events that are kind of easier for us to remember, especially as kids, the fire and the frogs and the death, all of these amazing things happen so that they can worship, so that God can be with them. See, the ark is the specific dwelling place of God, it is the holiest place that they know. And furthermore, it is the center point of the entire religion because everything that has happened up until this point is leading to this. They left to be in the desert so that God could be with them and they could worship him. That's what the ark is. It's not a device for beating Nazis. It is a monumentally important redemptive historical place. It is the special place of God. It is the mercy seat of God. So if that's, if that's what we're dealing with, then, then what's the sin that Uzzah does? And we know that he touches the ark. But the more we pay attention to the text, the more we see that the sins here are legion. And what's really helpful is to, to get the context for 2 Samuel 6. This is why it's good to read the Bible through and to let it dwell in our hearts, because everything that happens in 2 Samuel 6 has its root in the book of 1 Samuel. So we're going to turn there now. We're going to turn to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. And I, um, we're going to go through 1 Samuel 4, 5, and 6. I'm not going to read all of it. Um, but the story of 1 Samuel 4 is that the people of Israel go out to battle against their hated enemies, the Philistines, and they lose. And they ask themselves, why have we lost and then they say, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So they take the ark to do battle with the Philistines. 
They have a great shout of acclamation. The Philistines hear it, and they are so worried about the shout that they steal themselves to fight even harder, which then leads them to overtake the Israelites. So we said earlier that the, the, the ark is, first and foremost, it's the dwelling place of Hyde, the mercy seat of God. Is that the way that the leaders, Hophni and Phinehas, describe it? No. Here's what they say. Let us bring the ark of the Lord, that it may save us from the power of our enemies. Brothers and sisters, we just read Exodus 25. Did you hear that anywhere in the description of the ark? We read Numbers 10, how the priests were supposed to handle it. Did you hear anywhere that the ark was some sort of weapon that the people of God were supposed to carry around with them like a totem for battle? That is not what the ark is. Now, it's true that there are times in which the God decrees that the ark has a presence among the people of Israel and uses it as a sign of his favor with them. But what we understand is the real favor is that God is with them. It's not a weapon. And the whole point of the ark was so that God could dwell with his people. And so his people say, oh, that's great. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the ark away from the people. You could not come up with an opposite use for the ark better than the Israelites do. It is the dwelling place of God for them to approach him, and instead they take him out to be with the Philistines. And so it's taken away from them. And this is how the ark leaves the Israelites. For this, a great many of Israelites die, including the sons of Eli, Phinehas, and Hophni. And then we see what happens in 1 Samuel 5. So the first sin is basically that the Israelites are rejecting that the ark is the dwelling place of God. That doesn't really matter to us. The next sin that we see is that they're not treating it any different than any other god. And this is the sin of the Philistines now. Because what happens when they take the ark? It says they take it to their place. Verse 2, the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up besides Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face, downward from the ground, before the ark of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, uh, that would be enough for me to ask what's going on. But no, they're quite sure that this ark is not any different than their god. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But then they rose early on the next morning. And behold, Dagon had fallen downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. And only the trunk of Dagon was left. And it goes on to say that the people of Ashdod were terribly afflicted. And then the men say this, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. So while the Philistines accept that there's something special with the ark, you can see here in this phrasing that they still think he's sort of an equal. This God hates our God, and they're not going to work together. For the Philistines, we're basically in a cats and dogs situation rather than the creation of the universe supernaturally destroying idols in his presence. The Philistines say this isn't really any different than the other gods. And so because of the fear of it, they push it away. And then we have it in Acts chapter 6. The Philistines call for the priests of God and they say, listen, this thing is scary. Will you come take it from us? We're starting in verse 3. They said, if you send the ark with away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering. And then the Philistines reply, I'm jumping around a bit, I apologize. What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice. And so they make these things and they give it back. In verse 10, the men did so. 
And they took the two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their cows at home. And they put on the ark of the Lord on the cart the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And they do all these things and they put it on a cart. They put it on a cart. Now we just read at great length how the ark was to be handled. And the answer is, do not touch the ark. Do not touch it. Cover it with gold. If you're moving it, cover it with linens. Multiple layers of linens and goatskins. And put rods through the ark. Don't let the rods ever leave the ark so that this can't happen. But what the people of God do is they throw it in a cart, which, by the way, they're going to need to touch it to do that, and they bring it back to their land. And how does God respond at the end? In verse 19, God strikes down the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked on the ark of the Lord. So here are the three sins in this ark's journey. The first sin, as we noticed, is they didn't treat it like it was the dwelling place of God. They actually took it out of their midst. They didn't treat it like it was any different than any other god. The Philistines didn't. And then even the Israelites, they didn't treat it like it was holy. They looked at it and they touched it and they were struck from it. And then in chapter 7, starting in verse 2, from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So that's, that's the stage that's now set for 2 Samuel chapter 6. We know what the ark is. It is the special dwelling place of the God Most High. It is the center point of all of redemptive history up to that point. Everything that's happened has been leading to make this ark so that God could meet them there in his mercy seat. And it's a holy place. And then the people of God sin terribly. They deny that it's the special place of God. They deny that it's holy. They deny that he's even different than other gods. And so now we go to 2 Samuel chapter 6. David gathers the chosen men of Israel. David, the anointed king of the Lord. David, the one whose heart is after the Lord. David, the true king, goes to take the ark. Starting in verse 3, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And the sons of Abinadab carry it. And they're celebrating. And when they come to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah puts out his hand because it's falling, and God strikes him dead. In these three verses, four or five verses, we see every single sin that took chapters of 1 Samuel to describe codified in just a few minutes. Because what we see again is that the ark is on a cart. And brothers and sisters, this isn't even just that they're touching it and looking at it. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt now from archaeological evidence that putting idols on carts was the specific practice of Baal worshippers. Across the board, all the way over to Carthage, all the way up the Asia Minor Peninsula, Baal worshippers would put their idols onto carts and would drag the idol around. So what the anointed king of God, David, has done is jam a whole lot of sins into one brief moment. He's treating the ark like it's just another idol. Like it's just like Baal or Dagon or Beelzebub. He throws it on the cart. He's not treating it as holy. And he's certainly not treating it like God himself is present. And we see that in the one who's following him, Uzzah. We don't know anything about Uzzah. He's the son of the man whose house it was at. He seems like a faithful Israelite. He's following David. But because of David's and Israel's 
laundry list of awful sins, denying that God is really there, denying that he's really God, denying that he's holy, denying that he's different than Baal, the ark falls and Uzzah reaches out and touches it. And Uzzah is struck dead. So now our question is, what happened? And here's what I want to present to you. What happened is absolutely justice. For all of the reasons we just discussed. That the ark is here in this moment is a monument to constant treasonous sin by the people of God. Over 20 years, they have rejected his word. They have rejected his presence. He brought them out of Egypt. He sent fire from the sky. He turned water into blood. He killed the firstborn son of Egypt so that he could be with them, and they reject it. They send it out. They treat it like an idol. They touch it, and they look at it. And so when Uzzah is killed, it is justice. Because this piece of dirt that has rebelled and slandered and mocked and spit on God now reaches out to touch him. And what's amazing is for Uzzah or David, for anyone to think that for some reason it would be worse for the ark to touch the dirt than to touch me. Because the dirt doesn't disobey God. That human beings that came out of the dirt, we're the ones that disobey. Which is a good lesson about what, where best intentions get you. He reaches out. But the thing I really want to get across to you right now, and why I know Christianity is the only one with the answer to evil, is that when Uzzah dies, it is justice. But when Uzzah dies, it is also mercy. It is mercy. And we can imagine in our head the, the cattle railings and complaints of modern culture. For God to strike someone dead, we hear this all the time, that, that God is unjust, that he's cruel, that he's mean, that he kills Uzzah, that he kills the firstborn sons of Egypt, that he kills the Canaanites. How can a God who's good kill all of these people? And the best example of this I've ever seen, and I would encourage you to watch it, this is another thing that at least you'll get this out of my talk tonight, my exhortation, is to go home and look up a Ligonier question and answer session that happened like five or six years ago. Because someone asks Dr. Sproul, who was a person that I learned the Bible from, someone asked R.C. Sproul, um, if God is, by the way, that's how the question was phrased, if God is rich in mercy, you should go, whoops, yeah, that's not, that's not the way to start. Since God is rich in mercy, how is it that God was going to kill Adam and Eve just for taking the fruit? How is that a fair punishment? And Dr. Sproul responds, but what's interesting is you can see a righteous anger rising up in his old, his old body. He doesn't live much longer past this moment. But then he explains, there's this thing in the dust that God made. He picked it up out of the dust, he breathed his spirit into it, and he put it in a beautiful and perfect garden. And then, unlike with everything else he created, he had fellowship with it. He walked with it. He taught it its word, his word. And then the thing from the dust betrays him, betrays him, stabs him in the back. And God told him the minute he would do that, he would surely die. But the minute when that treasonous thing from the dust does it, what does God do but clothe it? Provide for it a covering. Pick it up. Provide for it hundreds of years of life. And we say, how is God merciful? And he famously erupts in this yell. He says, what's wrong with you people? I won't try to approximate it. But that's at the heart of what's happening with Uzzah. It is just that Uzzah dies. But what we see from this story in 1 Samuel 4-6 through 6 
is that every time this ark gets mishandled, it's not one person who dies. It's everybody. The entire Israelite army is destroyed. It's leaders. The son of Eli, Ahafti and Phineas, die. So here's the question. It's not why did Uzzah deserve to die when he touched the ark. It's how did David get to live? Because it's David's sin that led to this moment. David gets Uzzah killed. David commits all these sins. Hophni and Phinehas die for what they've done, and yet David gets to live. How about this? What happened to the Philistines? What happened to the people who were assembled around the ark when it was mistreated? They're afflicted with tumors. There's great death and suffering. All of the people in the area die. And yet here, when Uzzah touches the ark, only Uzzah dies. Let's go a step further in 1 Samuel 6. What happens to the Levites, the people, not just the ones who resemble, the people who commit this sin? The people are struck with the wrath of God. So in 2 Samuel 6, we don't have one man being unfairly impugned. We have one man being rightly punished for the worst imaginable sin, which is treason against the perfect God, and you have everyone else who's guilty getting pardoned, being shown mercy, being forgiven. And I'll quote, um, and this is, I think, the, the central issue with this world we live in, and it's why, by God's grace, I wanted to ask about theodicy when I was a new believer. And I'll quote uh, a former Baptist pastor named Bodhi Bauckham here. Um, theodicy is a big fancy word, theodicy. But what it really means is why do bad things happen to good people? And he said he gets asked that question a lot, but he says that he refuses to answer it because it's the wrong question. The question is not why do bad things happen to good people. The question is, why does God know what I did yesterday and thought last night and not kill me in my sleep? That's justice. And so we look at God enacting justice and say, that's not fair. And then we look at God constantly having mercy on us and say it's injustice on his part. That is the rot at the core of any culture set against God. Not only does it refuse to worship him, not only does it not accept that he dwells among man, not only does it not accept he is holy, not only does it treat him like any other deity, like Krishna, or like Hindu, or like Buddha, or like Muhammad, it calls that which is evil good and that which is good evil. And then it attacks us in our heart as Christians. And we see this. It says that David was greatly angered in this moment. And I, I don't know what that means. Perhaps he was angry at himself. He should have been. David is a great repenter. Perhaps he was angry at Uzzah. He should have been. Perhaps he was angry at God. He should not have been. But brothers and sisters, I, I appeal to you, and, and Luther said we preach best what we need to hear most. How often am I angry with God when my perceived injustices exist in my life? Perhaps I've been a Christian long enough, perhaps because I'm working at a church, I know that I'm not allowed to verbalize it. I'm not allowed to say that I'm angry at God but then I see the fruit of it in my life. Here's the biggest fruit of the fact that we don't understand God's justice, that we don't understand his mercy, that we, we are upset with what he's done, is that we don't go to him. Because here's my favorite part about this story, is that when we talk in the very beginning about the mercy seat of the ark, um, there was something called the Septuagint. It's a Greek version of the Old Testament. right? It's what the early church would have had. It's what the New Testament quotes from sometimes. The Greek word for that mercy seat 
is hilasterion. That word is also used in Romans 3.25. And one would think that it would have had that bookmarked. Here we go. Romans 3. I'll start earlier. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as hilasterion by His blood to be received by faith. Hebrews 9 makes this even more clear. The mercy seat of God that's Christ's propitiation for your sins. The mercy seat is Christ in the Old Testament. Christ is not a box. He's not the cherubim. He's not Uzo. We, we don't want to overdo it and find him everywhere in our story. But this is the same exact word. And the truth is, the very God who's in control of your life and makes justice is also the only one you can go to for mercy. And that's why the world hates him. I'll go back to Blaise Pascal again because he said this and I found it very helpful to me. People don't actually have a problem that there's a God. People have a problem that they're not him. That's what they hate. They hate that there's a God and it's not myself. And so when they see God punishing us for what we deserve, it reminds us that we're far more Dagon than we are God. We are the ones who rebel against him. Everything that comes our way is just. The answer to the Canaanite band, brothers and sisters, is the answer to Uzzah. Everyone who dies, dies under the sovereign hand of God. We don't need to worry about whether or not it was just that God wiped out the world in the flood or wipes out the Canaanites or wipes out Uzzah because every man and woman that's alive deserves to die and will, Probably. We pray eagerly for Christ to come back. But until that happens, it's appointed once for men to die. What happened to Uzzah is probably a lot more dramatic than how each one of us is going to die. But we're going to go through what Uzzah went through because why Uzzah went through it, which is sin. Right? Sin has made our bodies perishable and we need to be sown imperishable. But the hope of us is the hope of Uzzah and it's the hope of David who knew it better than anyone. The hope is that the God that I've sinned against can also be my hilasterion. The God that I've sinned against can be my mercy seat. He can cover my sins. And whenever I believe in my heart that he is unjust, I believe with all my heart and mind, it is my flesh and it is the enemy getting you to think of yourself as God and getting you to run away from the ark of the Lord who can carry you. So when we see the story of of the ark, of 2 Samuel 6. And I suppose I'll end this way. Um, we know not to read our Bibles in a very simplistic way where we put ourselves in the story. We know not to dare to be a Daniel. We know that when David goes and fights Goliath, that Christ is David and I'm not. The good news is that we are in this story because you're Uzzah. You are in this story. When you read through it, feel free to put your name in the text, right? Because that's what we would have done. We come thinking we know what we are, like Pascal said. We think we can be God. I know what God needs. Maybe even we're David. We think we can do all these things separate from what he's told us to. Sin and injustice 
only wreaks misery only. Only. And yet, again, the very one who punishes these sins is the one who can cover us. Uzzah's salvation was in the thing that he reached out for. He did it wrongly. He was punished. But the story of 2 Samuel 6 for us today is to reach out in faith, like Romans says, reach out in faith to the Hillasterian that's been given to you. He is holy. He's not like other gods. You do not get to come to him any way you want. R. Scott Clark said this well. He's a professor at Westminster Seminary. The Church of God is the only place in the world where we say, come as you are, but you don't get to stay that way. Come as you are, and then be changed. But don't think that you have to be changed in order to come. Come to the mercy seat of God. It is holy. The Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of God, but for you whom he loves, it is the only thing that can save you from your sins. And whatever's going on in your life, this is why I also thought it was important, um, if you are sick right now, um, from COVID, and again, I'm quoting Martin Luther, if you look on God and see him angry, then you see him wrongly. Because Christ is that covering seat. Any kind of sickness we know does come from God as a chastening, but you don't have COVID because God hates you. And you don't have COVID because you are far from him. And you don't have COVID because he's unjust. Instead, it's reminding you that the God who is just can cover your sins. And that tonight, November 29th, for all of us, is the right day to come to the Holy One of Israel and ask Him to forgive our sins in all of our life because He's just.